Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am the other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we've got another great poem for you today. This poem is by the poet Natalie Diaz, who is really a marvelous poet. She came out with her first and so far only poetry collection in 2012. It's called When My Brother Was an Aztec. And Diaz was born in the Fort Mojave Indian Village in Needles, California. And she is Mojave and an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian community. And interestingly, now she is living back in Mojave Valley and she's worked with the sort of last speakers of the Mojave language and has directed a language revitalization program. There's a cool PBS interview with her that we'll, uh, we'll link to. But um, this poem that we'll read is from that collection when my brother was an Aztec. It's called My Brother at 3 a.m. And I will read it now. My Brother at 3 a.m. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the steps when mom unlocked and opened the front door. Oh God, he said. Oh God, he wants to kill me, mom. When mom unlocked and opened the front door at 3 a.m., she was in her nightgown. Dad was asleep. He wants to kill me, he told her, looking over his shoulder. 3 a.m. and in her nightgown, dad asleep. What's going on, she asked. Who wants to kill you? He looked over his shoulder. The devil does. Look at him over there. She asked, what are you on? Who wants to kill you? The sky wasn't black or blue, but the green of a dying night. The devil, look at him over there. He pointed to the corner house. The sky wasn't black or blue, but the dying green of night. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. My brother pointed to the corner house. His lips flickered with sores. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. Oh God, I can see the tail, he said. Oh God, look. Mom winced at the sores on his lips. It's sticking out from behind the house. Oh God, see the tail, he said. Look at the goddamn tail. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the front steps. Mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. Oh God, oh God, she said. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Very intense and also very intensely crafted, which I'll be interested to dig into in addition to the subject matter. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so the brief kind of synopsis of the poem is that the speaker's brother, who seems to be sometimes perhaps an autobiographical brother, but also a kind of mythical brother or an idea of a brother, which is sort of alluded to in the When My Brother Was an Aztec title. And so I, I try not to read it too literally, but in the poem, the speaker's brother, we learn in other poems is, a, is addicted to meth. And this is kind of a moment when he's having like an increasingly 
unstable experience. Um, you don't know specifically in this poem that it's meth, but you know that there's probably some kind of drug. The mom asks at one point, what are you on? And the brother is sort of like seeing this vision of a devil um, and thinks that he's trying to kill her. And he's like sort of coming back home for like help, basically. And that's kind of like the basic, like what's going on in the poem. Yeah, until the start of that fourth stanza where she asks, what are you on? I wasn't sure, not seeing the poem in the context of the book, which maybe would would provide this, but I wasn't sure if the devil was going to be the father and it was like a domestic abuse situation because those were the two possibilities that came to mind right away was either drugs or because the father being asleep is specifically mentioned as like this entity sort of beyond the interaction is that maybe that was the devil being referenced, but obviously it's it's clearly not. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, it, it ends up, yeah, being, being drugs. And also by the end too, um, and we can talk more about this, but, but I love this ending, but the mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. And then she says, oh God, oh God. And so the, the devil that the brother is seeing sort of is transformed into himself basically in the, in the eyes of his mom and and also the speaker but yeah so formally this is a specific form of a poem and i wanted to pick one that had a kind of formal thing after we talked about the the golden shovel poem by joy harjo we were sort of talking about like in harjo's poem the form felt perhaps maybe too loud as a form. And we sort of talked about like, you know, what the what the role is between form and content, how present should it be, etc. And true friend of the pod, Mike Alberti, had asked me after that episode to bring a poem that was uh, an example of the form sort of being quieter or being more uh, less obtrusive. So I picked this poem because I feel like it's a great example of that. The form that it is, is a pantoum, which is an originally, kind, it's kind of an ancient form from the 15th century that originated in Malaysia, but it kind of has morphed into something else. And in the 19th century, yeah, the pantoum was popular with sort of French and British writers. Um, and Charles Baudelaire and Victor Hugo are, I guess, credited for introducing the form to like European writers. Um, and then kind of in the 20th century, Ann Waldman and Donald Justice and mainly like Ashbery had kind of revitalized the form. And it's, it's I think, become a relatively popular contemporary form, actually. And so the way that the form works is every, every stanza is in quatrains, is four lines long. And the second and the fourth line of each stanza becomes the first and the third line of the next stanza. So in the first stanza of this poem, we have, he sat cross-legged weeping on the steps when mom unlocked and opened the front door. Oh God, he said, oh God, he wants to kill me, mom. And then we have the next stanza, when mom unlocked and opened the front door, which is that second line becoming the first. At 3 a.m., she was in her nightgown, dad was asleep. He wants to kill me, he told her, uh, looking over his shoulder. And the he wants to kill me is, is a kind of return to uh, from the 
from the fourth line of the first stanza. Diaz is is like is a little looser with the repetitions in that they don't appear sort of exactly in stanza to stanza, although sometimes they do. Um, but that's basically the whole form. The only other part is that usually the first and third lines of the first stanza become the second and fourth lines of the last stanza, which sort of forms a little loop. And so this happens in that where the last stanza is, oh God, see the tail, he said, look at the goddamn tail. And then he sat cross-legged, weeping on the front steps. Mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother, oh God, oh God, she said. And so the oh God, oh God, and the cross-legged lines sort of return from the very first stanza. The difference at which is interesting is that in this poem, the mom is now saying the oh God, oh God at the end, whereas in the first stanza, um, it's the brother. So that's kind of like a, a basic overview of the form. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one because it also is not a fixed length. It's like you can just keep it going for as long as you can, just repeating and repeating, um, which makes it different than a lot of other sort of like highly formal things like a sonnet or a villanelle or a sestina, which kind of have fixed lengths. So this one is a little more flexible in that way. Partially probably why it's so popular, because it does have that room for flexibility. And as you see in this poem, just by tweaking, the lines do repeat for the most part, but the small tweaks that are made in some cases change the direction they're pointing, as in, as you pointed out, oh God, oh God, she said in the last line, in the last stanza is a an alteration from oh God, he said, oh God, in the first. Um, it's a very slight change, but it's a change that completely reorients us. So I like this poem because, as I said, I feel like it's a good example of um, the form working like really well with what's happening in the poem, but also being kind of quiet. Partly the quietness, I think, comes from the way that she does change sort of little lines to line. But like each each line works totally like independently in both contexts that they appear in. So there's no like obvious, I guess, like repetition in that you just like know that it had to return because it doesn't make any sense. And so like, you know, there's kind of like a repetition of action. You know, he's like, he wants to kill me, he told her, looking over his shoulder. And then later he looked over his shoulder again. And, you know, there's kind of like this repetition of questions that people are asking. And I guess like, I feel like the the fact that it's such a narrative poem in the beginning, you know, that there's like dialogue, um, you know, there's the speaker's voice, but there's also the mom's voice and the brother's voice. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're really being asked to see, you know, someone sitting on the steps outside a house, pointing at something and the sort of conversation that ensues after that, rather than like sort of a lyric voice, just sort of proclaiming something um, in which there's like not actually like a, a setting that we feel like we're in. I feel like the fact that the poem is so narrative brings us out of the poem as a poem um, and brings us into sort of the events that unfold. And I think that's sort of an effective move for the poem because 
we were not thinking about. Like we might notice that the lines are repeating, but we're not sort of like thinking about the poem as like, now I am reading a pantoum or like, and we're at the Villanelle's last stanza where the first and the third line shall repeat. That kind of like very conscious sort of thing that I think was really, you know, we had talked about in Joy Harjo's poem where it's like the last line sort of was very present as the kind of repetition from the um, Gwendolyn Brooks poem is like sort of subdued because of the narrative element. I love that you brought that out because I think for me, at least part of what really made this poem work was the interaction of the narrative with the form because the form creates this circular endless return to the beginning and this narrative about drug use and drug addiction so well fits a destructive cycle and is so often discussed in terms of being a repeating pattern of behavior beyond the individual's control. And this form so neatly gives us a story that happens, but the end of that story points us back to the beginning of it as though this could happen again at another 3 a.m. My brother comes to these stairs at 3 a.m. more than once, over and over again. And even in the course of this one poem, this could be I think it is supposed to have all taken place at one point, but you see a deterioration in the description of the brother throughout the poem as though this is, there's like those super gross in the sense of being like in bad taste, like mugshot progressions of individuals who use methamphetamines that you can find very easily on the internet, but you get a sense of that level of deterioration over the course of the poem. And so even though I think it feels like it takes place on one night, it could also be taking place in snapshots over the course of weeks or months. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, so like in the beginning, he's sort of sitting cross-legged, weeping, clearly in despair, but we don't know exactly what's happening. Someone wants to kill him. He's saying we're not exactly sort of like knowing what's happening. But then in the third stanza, he says the devil does look at him over there. And that kind of mention of the devil is like, okay, this the brother's like kind of in another plane, either hallucinating or in like a very um, distressed state of mind. Um, and then two stanzas later, my brother pointed to the corner house, his lips flickered with sores. We get that very visceral description, um, which is sort of like a common feature of someone who um, is addicted to meth. And then like at the very end, we have mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. Um, so that's exactly right that there, there is this kind of progression, even in the same quote unquote narrative moment that also has like sort of a larger progression sort of built into it um, because of the repetition of the form. And that's kind of like what you want. That's kind of like the basic good thing that you want from like a form is to just like do what you want to do in your content kind of and get at something that you can't purely get at with just like what you're saying and so the repetition sort of itself becomes part of the part of the content in the the sort of endless cycling and also the sense of like stasis i think too it's like he wants to kill me mom it's like everyone's saying the same thing over and over again um and like no one really knows what's going on and they're doing these things like just pointing to houses and sitting. And so it's like, there's both a progression and both 
nothing's happening too. And there's that the there's also that confusion too, which which actually comes out in the repetition of the dialogue where it's like, what's going on? Like, what are you on? Who wants to kill you? The fact that she needs to like keep asking this speaks to the level of like disconnect that's like between the brother and the bomb and the speaker. I love that you bring that up because that is part of what struck me as well is that not only is everybody saying the same things over and over again, but where the forum does open up and leaves room for thinking that this might be over a longer period of time. At the same time, it is exactly that stasis and the almost claustrophobic closing in of the cycle that endlessly returns that the form also points to, which I think is a really incredible aspect of this poem, that it can be so effective in both directions. It can both expand what we're dealing with while at the same time using that expansion to make us feel even more constrained. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way that's like becomes literal at the end where, you know, we're thinking about the brother as his own person and then the devil as maybe not real, but like a separate vision that the brother's having. But by the end, they become one and they sort of like converge into one thing um, in that kind of constraining way that you were talking about. And yeah, and I just love that I don't know. I, I guess I'm really suckered by that last line and the, the way that it returns but changes slightly and, and the, oh God, oh God, she said versus the, oh God, he said, oh God, in the beginning. Because that kind of, I don't know, that just seems to say so much about the complicatedness of, you know, someone who's struggling with addiction or um, is in deep distress in some kind of in tractable problem. I think that's how you say that word. Mm-hmm. Um, where on the one hand, the person who, you know, in this case has the addiction is suffering greatly and is like feels chased by a devil and is also is in great pain himself. But at the same time, they become sort of their own hellish thing, or at least you know, appear horrifying to those who sort of love them the most. And so that kind of like slight turn of at the end of the mom saying, oh God, oh God, when she sees like her son in sort of this state is like a really cool way of like capturing that sort of dual horror, I think that happens in these sorts of situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. I also, the way the devil works in this poem is very interesting because I think it is set up to be sort of a vision that the brother is having. But I think another reading could be that the the devil is the addiction itself drawing ever closer and becoming ever more clear, uh, both to the person who is suffering the addiction and to those around them. And the synthesis of those two things at the end where my mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. Before that and throughout the poem, the devil becomes clearer and clearer and more and more present, the same way that an addiction might become more and more obvious and present over time, both in the physicality of the individual and just like to those around them through their behaviors or their or their statements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like, he wants to kill me, but we don't know who the he is. Then it's the devil does look at him, but we don't really... We haven't seen him yet, but then he says, you know, it's, I can see the tail and then it's sticking out from behind the house. So it's like gradually, you know, acquiring the the visual physical features and also sort of like its location and it's very like closeness to them. 
yeah, I think that that is really right. And it's interesting too, because as the brother more clearly describes the devil, the mother is more clearly seeing the evidence of addiction in the body of the brother. Right. Um, right. So when he says, when he says, when he points to the corner house is when his lips flicked with sores. But then when he says, I can see the tail, he said, oh, God, look, that's when mom winced at the sores on his lips. That's the first time someone who's not the brother is seeing this. So the second that he is pointing to a specific piece of the devil is also the first time that a specific physical manifestation of addiction is pointed out by someone looking at his body. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a strong connection between the two. And also you have this continued pairing of the devil and the brother in terms of who is seeing what and how those two entities are in some ways, maybe one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That is a really good observation. And yeah, and it's like such a good, there's also these two lines that I really love that are kind of like there. And I guess I'm thinking about it because we talked about sort of dramatic narrative lyrical modes um, when we were talking about Angels in America and that Harper's monologue. And in a way, you know, so this is like actually poetry. So maybe it's it's more naturally lyrical or whatever. But because it's so narratively based, it's it's actually for a lot of the poem, it's sort of suppressing the poetic genre in a way. Um, and especially because there's like dialogue. Um, it's even dramatic in that way, perhaps. But then towards the middle of the poem, there's two great lines. That's the sky wasn't black or blue, but the green of a dying night, which then becomes the sky wasn't black or blue, but the dying green of night. And then, which this is I just love, stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives, which then repeats again in the same way. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. And those are... I mean, amazing images for one. Um, I love, I'm especially obsessed with the stars that close their eyes or sheath their knives because it's like when the stars blink out, it's like perfect image figurative thing where it's like an apt, you know, thing, but it's like they're either closing their eyes, which is like a gentle thing, or they're sheathing their knives and you can sort of see that the star is sort of the glint of a knife perhaps and that when they sort of blink out, there, there's a sheath that's coming over them, which has that kind of moment of threat. But then at the same time, the, the sounds are just like, it's actually like super, I encourage you all to try to say that line. It's like so hard to say. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. <laughs> the airs and the e's and the shuzz and the eyes um, are all so like tight. And it's like really, especially given the context of the poem that's like otherwise you know, not in a critical way, but is like sort of prosaic, you know, like he wants to kill me. He told her what's going on. She asked who wants to kill you. You know, that the language of that is like not quote unquote, the stuff of poetry or whatever, but that makes those two moments particularly pop because they're suddenly so sonically tight and so vivid and imagistic, which is like such a cool little moment in the poem. Absolutely. That stood out to me too. That language is just so good. And as you pointed out, so different from what's going on in the rest of the poem. Yeah. And they have like, I guess I sort of think about it as like a little, this is me thinking about craft, but like a kind of preparation 
for the end in some sort of way where like we need to we need to imbue this this moment in this scene with like an extra kind of charge and we also need to sort of like slow the reader into the end in some kind of way and 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 you see that a lot in things that aren't lyrical stuff you often see it at the end at the ends of things even if they're not lyrical like the ends of novels you know jack had mentioned uh, the great gatsby ends very lyrically the ends of plays often end very lyrically and you not even the language but like you know there's always like lighting changes and like things slow down or whatever you know the end of the glass menagerie by tennessee williams you know at least in a production i saw which i think probably happens often the kind of all the glass on the ground like lights up basically and there's this kind of like magic moment but also this slower moment that i think is like a necessary or it's like a very useful way to end something and this is like a little different because it doesn't end on the lyrical moment per se but the moments but those two sort of lyrical lines in the middle add this other texture to the scene that i think like primes us in a way that we almost aren't realizing it yet for the end Definitely. And I think in a poem like this, where the end and the beginning are in conversation with each other, it makes a lot of sense that rather than coming at the end, that lyrical takeoff point does come right in the middle between the two, which in a way isn't the end, but it is the point that is farthest from the beginning and the end. You know, it, yeah. it, in a poem where it's sort of a loop that becomes a different kind of place than just the middle of a straightforward poem going from point A to B. However circuitous the route may be in a poetic form, it doesn't have the same kind of end that most poems do because this end points us back to the beginning. If I may offer a theory based on that. Please um, do. Well, maybe it's not a theory, but and another idea is that the, the lyrical moments of the stars and their eyes and their knives and the sky and the black and the blue and the green, their lyricalness, what they do is change the nature of the repetition so that in the beginning, the repetition is, is like a hidden, but sort of just like a narrative happening, subdued. And then with that, the repetition becomes or is able to become the kind of lyrical repetition um, or association that repetition most naturally would be perhaps. Repetition is, is often like the, the kind of principal tool, either whole lines repeating or like anaphora where the beginnings where someone's just like, you know, let us do this, let us do that, let us do that. That kind of moment, you know, is like one of the big ways that lyric becomes lyric but what diaz has done in the beginning is actually try to be like no don't think about the repetition that way but then i think by the end to get that kind of oh god oh god she said inversion we have to hear we have to hear the echo the associative echo from the beginning and i think perhaps the sort of purely imagistic moments are moving our ear in that direction maybe totally Definitely. Totally love that. Yeah, I'm down <laughs> with that. That sounds great. That sounds great. Cool. But, well, and it feel, I think it feels true to the experience of reading the poem as well. 
at least yeah. at least for me i think that that definitely is is how it felt for me when i was first reading through it yeah and and the other thought that i had too just as i guess another note is the the form mostly is right except for the last second to last line which is like a total break so the the second to last stanza's last line is it's sticking out from behind the house so if the pantoum were sort of proper the third line in the last stanza would be some version of it sticking out from behind the house but instead it's mom finally saw it a hellish vision my brother and that's obviously a very deliberate break from the form yeah which i think is in some ways just going to another way of the poem working in the ways that we've been talking about where a it's it's because it breaks it draws attention to itself and so it's drawing attention to you know the brother being the hellish vision but it's also the moment that the stasis is interrupted or something and that there is a kind of progression and that the progression is that the brother is the devilish hellish picture and so that that sort of like formal rupture sort of helps do an extra nudge about, you know, that uh, larger content. That might be the best evidence to point to for the validity of that reading, in fact. Woo, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is, because it does. It so strongly draws that connection that instead of restating that line about the tail sticking out, it's a line directly about the brother. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's right. Very cool. Very cool. Let's read it again. My brother at 3 a.m. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the steps when mom unlocked and opened the front door. Oh, God, he said, oh, God. He wants to kill me, mom. When mom unlocked and opened the front door at 3 a.m., she was in her nightgown. Dad was asleep. He wants to kill me, he told her, looking over his shoulder. 3 a.m. and in her nightgown, dad asleep. What's going on, she asked. Who wants to kill you? He looked over his shoulder. The devil does. Look at him over there. She asked, what are you on? Who wants to kill you? The sky wasn't black or blue, but the green of a dying night. The devil, look at him over there. He pointed to the corner house. The sky wasn't black or blue, but the dying green of night. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. My brother pointed to the corner house. His lips flickered with sores. Stars had closed their eyes or sheathed their knives. Oh God, I can see the tail, he said. Oh God, look. Mom winced at the sores on his lips. It's sticking out from behind the house. Oh, God, see the tail, he said. Look at the goddamned tail. He sat cross-legged, weeping on the front steps. Mom finally saw it, a hellish vision, my brother. Oh, God, oh, God, she said. for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. 
You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know. Tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.